This morning, I, I did more of a preach for you. Uh, tonight, I want to do a teach for you. I hope that's okay. I know it's Sunday evening, um, and so you're going to have to engage your brains a little bit tonight. I have as many funny and interesting stories as I had this morning, um, but I have the most important story that's ever been told, and that's the gospel. And what I'm really passionate about, out of all the things that I teach, this thing that I'm doing tonight is the thing I'm most passionate about, because the gospel is the most central story to all of our own stories. And it's a gospel, a story that I think as Christians, we tend to think we know it. Like we kind of know the gospel, surely. Like Jesus died on the cross and paid the price of my sins and rose again so I can have a new life. You know, like we think we have this idea of what the gospel is, but there's nothing more inspiring or nothing that fills us more with joy than I think actually rediscovering the gospel, actually finding out that the gospel story is much bigger than we perhaps the pox that we've kind of put it in. And when it comes to thinking about what God does through the gospel, through our scriptures, through that redemptive story, we come to understand a God who is far bigger, far more gracious, and far more, um, what I would say, justice-loving than perhaps we originally give him credit for. And I think when we understand the gospel broader, we actually begin to redefine what it means to be a Christian. And sometimes as Christians, if we have a small gospel, we end up with a small faith. We end up with a small expression of our faith. We end up with a faith that is centered around 90 minutes on a Sunday rather than something that should be the most radical, subversive, and countercultural thing that there has ever been in the world, and we get to be the people a part of that movement. That, for me, is incredibly exciting. And I think part of the problem is um, we've actually got a Bible reading problem in the church today. We have a Bible reading problem. Does anybody agree with me? Now, yeah, yeah people are like, yeah, yeah, definitely. Particularly my family. Um, so... But here's the issue. I don't think we have a Bible reading problem in the sense that we don't have enough people reading the Bible. I think we have a Bible reading problem in the sense that we read the Bible in the wrong direction. Let me explain that briefly. Let me say it this way. And you may not have heard a pastor say this before, but here's the truth. This book is not about you. Turn to your neighbor and say, the Bible is not about you. Now... <laughs> Now, you might be like, hang on a sec, who's this guy from Hong Kong who's this heretic bringing heresy to our church? Now, don't get me wrong. Of course, the Bible is filled of amazing stuff that you can learn from and gain from, that you can do your devotionals in. But here's the issue. We've turned the Bible into a self-help book. When the Bible is predominantly about you and your problem and your needs and the things that are going on in your life, we have a tendency as Christians to turn this story into our story to make this a self-help book to help us get through the week that we're about to face. Now, again, I'm not coming down on devotionals. Do your daily reading, okay? Everybody say yes. But I want to empower you tonight to begin to think about reading the Bible in a different direction. Don't read the Bible. I'm going to get this thing here. Hang on a sec. Oh, this has got communion. That's cool. Can I put communion on the floor? Is that sacrilegious? All right, good. Praise the Lord. There you go. Okay. So um, here, here's the situation. Can everybody see this? I'm just going to put the Bible on this thing. Here's what we do. We read the Bible in this direction. We start with ourselves and we go 
towards the scriptures and we're like, Lord, what is it that I can get today to help me where I'm at? Making sense? Here's the direction that I think the Bible was actually written in. We actually are to start with God's story, realizing that this book is actually not about us predominantly. It's about God. It's about Jesus. It's His story wrapped up in history. And the way to read the Bible is to start with God's story and then find our own story within it. Not starting from the position of me and what can this thing do for me this week, but starting with the radical thought that this is about history. It's about redemption. It's about God and God's work in this world. It's about how all of humanity wrapped up in that world. And when I read it, I get to learn about what it truly means to be human. I get to find my story in this story. And when I do so, I actually come alive. And so we are to read the Bible in the right direction. And the interesting thing is, when we actually begin to do that, we actually begin to encounter the gospel in a whole new way. I was in a, a group of theology students recently teaching them, and um, there was about 50 uh, theology students in the class, and I said to them, um, give me the gospel. And without a single mistake, every single person in that room basically said the gospel like this, humanity is fallen and is under this oppression of sin. And we can't solve that sin issue ourselves. We need somebody external to us to be able to do so. We need a sacrifice on our behalf. God sends his only son, because he so loves the world, to be that sacrifice for us. And as God does that, and Jesus pays the price for our sin on the cross, raises again, we are now forgiven and free from the sin story that we're wrapped up in, and we're now released into a new story. Every single one of the theology class students gave me that as the gospel. Now, that's a good gospel, isn't it? That's probably the gospel that we're all familiar with, is it not? But I put it to you that that's not the whole gospel. Or, if you will, it's not the full gospel. That story actually starts the gospel in the wrong place. It starts the gospel in Genesis chapter 3. Here's the thing. Um, does anybody know the movie Goonies? Yeah, I'm showing my age a little bit. You are too, but you're young, so that's cool. Um, so Goonies, if, have, who's seen Stranger Things? If you haven't seen Goonies, you've probably seen Stranger Things. Okay, that's, again, just one person. I'm doing really well tonight. Um, or there's a bunch of people in here that have seen it, and you're not admitting it. Okay, I know. Now, anyway, Stranger Things was based off of Goonies. But anyway, Goonies was this movie, Steven Spielberg, um, in, the, in the 80s. And um, when it came out on television... Okay, I was about the same age as the main characters in the movie Goonies. Um, so I was about 14 or so, 12, 12, 13, something like that. When it came out in the cinemas, my parents refused for me to go watch it. A little bit later, it started to come out on the television set. Yeah, you still have those nowadays? Yep. So, and my parents had this television set, and it would come up, the Goonies would show on the TV, and I'd beg my parents to watch it, and they'd say, nope, nope, you can't watch it. Um, it was always too late at night, and I had to go to bed early to get up to school for the next day, so I could never watch it. Then one day, my dad brought home this shiny black box that he placed under the television. He called it a VCR, I called it God. Because what this thing did was it recorded anything that was on the television on a little tape thing about the size like this, and you could play it any time after that and watch it. I know, it's cool. So we were blown away by this in the 80s, 
And so Goonies came up on TV again. My dad said, don't worry, son. I'll record Goonies for you tonight. And then tomorrow you can bring your friends home after school. You can watch it. So we did. The next day we go uh, after school. I've got me and my mates. We've never seen the movie before. We put the tape in the tape player, the VCR thing. We push play and we watch it. Now the opening scene of the Goonies is amazing. There's this scene where there's this black SUV that comes up driving very slowly and it meanders through this neighborhood and then the camera pans up and you get to see Mike, one of the main characters, one of the little boys. And Mike leans on this window and he says this opening phrase. He says, nothing ever interesting happens around here anyway. And it's a great ironic opening line to the movie because the rest of the movie is about the most grand adventure that this kid has ever been on, right? For years, we watched this movie us kids. We wanted to be these kids. They were like the heroes of our lives. We watched that movie countless, countless times. Later, when I was at university, quite a bit older, me and my mates decided, hey, did anybody see Goonies in the 80s? And we're like, yeah, we saw Goonies in the 80s. Let's watch it. So we went to the DVD store, by the way. I know you don't have those anymore either, but um, a DVD store. And we rented the DVD, and we put it in our DVD player, and we watched it. And as we played it, something took place that I could not believe. There was five minutes to the movie that I had never before seen. And I realized that my dad must have started the movie about five minutes late when he came to record it. And I was suddenly introduced to the actual beginning of the film. And I could not believe this. I was like a 20-year-old watching it. I was like, my mouth was open. Everybody else had seen it millions of times. And I was like, this is new. This is amazing. And here's what's amazing about it. It's the best five minutes of cinematic opening history. I mean, what Steven Spielberg does in those five minutes. Here, here's what happens. I'll give you the brief synopsis. There's these antagonists, and they're in jail. They get broken out of jail. They jump into a black SUV. They speed all the way through the town. And whilst they're being chased by the cops... Spielberg introduces you to all the main characters in the movie. And you get to see a little bit of each of their characters. And it's a way of just sort of saying, this guy's going to be like this, this guy's like this, this guy's like this. And you just see these little vignettes of all these amazing characters. And then as they're chasing the car on the beach, they manage to escape all the federal police. And they end up meandering through a quiet neighborhood, nice and slowly, coming around the bend. The camera pans up, and there's Mikey, and guess what he says? He says, nothing ever interesting happens around here anyway. And that line took on a whole new meaning for me, because it's not just ironic about what was ahead, it was actually ironic about the five minutes that had just happened. My prayer tonight is that the gospel will take on a whole new meaning for you. As we don't begin the story in Genesis 3, but we actually go back to the very beginning in Genesis 1 and 2. And just like in Goonies, where the first five minutes introduces you to all the main characters, guess what? Genesis 1, 2, and 3 introduces you to all the main characters of the rest of the biblical story. And what you see and learn about them in the intro is actually what you need to know about everything that the gospel is about to do. That's my intro. Does that sound all right? For three of you, and I get a woohoo over here. That's very nice. That was probably the baby trying to eat food. Um, so, all right. So I'm gonna I'm gonna draw up. I'm gonna map out the gospel for us uh, over the next little while. You need to be comfortable. You need to turn your brains on. Is that all right? Everybody okay? Are you okay, Jeff? I'm, I'm looking at you, buddy. Don't fall asleep. You'll hurt me. Okay. So um, here's the opening part 
of our gospel, it's the garden. Now, of course, I'm not going to cover everything tonight. We don't have time. I'm going to just do the highlight parts, but the important bits for what I want to talk about in this area of social justice. The pinnacle of God's creation. By the way, <laughs> I write in tongues, so you'll need to pray for an interpretation half the way. Half, you know, so just be careful. Anyway, so God creates humanity as the pinnacle of his creation. He's just created everything in the world, and the last thing he creates, the pinnacle of it, is humanity. And the Bible tells us that we are made, in this phrase, the image of God, or imago Dei, as you may have come to hear it in the Latin, but in the Hebrew, it's the image of God. It's, it's us imaging who God is. That means that there is something inherent in who we are as humans that actually shows what God is like, that we in some hail image him. Now, scholars have debated for many centuries what this image of God is all about. Um, the most important one for tonight's conversation is it speaks about relationship. It speaks about the inherent relationship between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and their eternal, inherent, self-giving, self-sacrifice, and love towards one another. And we, as humans, are made in the image, meaning that there needs to be some form of relational wholeness in our lives that can actually show the world what God is like. Now, in this image of God, we're told that God creates for us a world where there are the notions of good and evil, the notions of right and wrong. And what God does in His creation of humanity is He invites them to understand God's view, this is very important, God's view of what's right and wrong, God's view of good and evil, God's view of what flourishes and what decays. And in the midst of that understanding, they are then given a task, this is humanity, to rule over creation. Not in the oppressive sense that we might think of that word, but of the great invitation to be co-creators of the world around us and to care for that world in such a way that we would image something of the character of God. So here's what I want you to capture as we start out our exploration of the justice theme in Scripture. Humanity created in the image of God, which says something about His character and our relationship with one another, the good and evil that He gives to us, so that we can then understand the right ways in which we can care, rule, flourish creation around us. All of this comes to a point of four relational contexts in which this actually takes place. Is everybody okay still? You sure? Okay. Here's number one. Us and God. These are the four relational contexts that you see in Genesis 1 and 2. Us and ourselves. Number three is us and others. And finally, can anyone guess what the fourth one is? Sorry? Us and us, that was already covered. That's us and ourselves and us and others. Us and creation. Excellent. Right. So these four relational contexts are what are critical for us as we come to understand how we image God, understand what is right and just in the world, and rule over creation so that it will find its flourishing. We have a relationship context with us and God. You see that with Adam and Eve in the garden, God walking with them in relationship in the coolness of the night of the garden. 
We have a relational context with us and ourselves, how we see ourselves, understand ourselves, and who we are. We have a relational context with us and one another. You see that in Adam and Eve, specifically in Genesis 1 and 2, but of course it grows much broader than that as Genesis continues. And then finally, we have us in creation. We're called to rule over that creation, care for it, look after it, so that we can image the character of God to the world. And here's the final thing that Genesis 1 and 2 says. It says, when that all takes place and is done in God's way, um, there is a shalom and a flourishing in the world around us. This is just the first two chapters of the Bible. But if we don't start the gospel here, we actually miss the point of what the gospel is all about. I want you to notice with me how God sets up the whole biblical narrative. You want to know what justice looks like. You want to know what flourishing looks like. You want to know what life to its full looks like. We are to, as the image of God, the only thing in creation made to image God, we are to understand God's values and his heart and therefore nurture and and work in creation and our four relational contexts so that we would have an environment that we could deem is shalom, peaceful, wholeness, restful, the very place in which life truly flourishes. When you get to the end of Genesis 2, it's like God stands back from this and he says, you want to know what a just society looks like? You want to know what a world of flourishing looks like? It looks like this and it is good. Not only that, God stands back and says, this is very good, doesn't he? Ah, but then we have a problem. For as good as all that is, something then takes place, doesn't it? Genesis 3 invades itself on Genesis 2. And here's what we see happen in Genesis 3. We see a rebellion against the very things that God has created. And of course, we see Satan at the heart of that rebellion of humanity. And through Satan's trickery and seduction of Adam and Eve, they decide to choose the fruit from what? What do they choose the fruit from? <laughs> what is it? Tree of knowledge of what? Oh, somebody just, what, what did you say? Good and evil? Hmm. Notice the connection. God has established the world for justice and flourishing under his concept of what is right and wrong in Genesis 1 and 2. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve's great sin is they take the fruit of the tree of good and evil. What that basically means is they're not content anymore with how God understands what's right and wrong. They want to redefine what is right and wrong, not so that they can rule over creation anymore. Here's the great sin of Genesis 3, so that they can then rule over themselves. Their disobedience and their sin is that they decide that they would want to redefine what is right and wrong so that they could rule over themselves and be at the advantage of themselves to the disadvantage of someone else. No longer with the call that they were called to to rule over creation and bring that into flourishing, they now decide that they will constantly redefine what's right and wrong so that they are always in the place of rights and somebody else is in the place of wrong. We see this straight away with Adam and his ability to throw his wife Eve under the bus straight away in front of God. You remember that part of the story? 
When God shows up and goes, did you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? And here's Adam's response. I love it. He says this, the woman you put here with me, it's her fault. Now notice a few things he says there. Number one, he says, the woman you put here with me. I didn't ask for her. I didn't want her. I was perfect. You were the one who said I needed a helpmate. And then you brought her along. I lost a rib because of this thing over here. And, and it's this thing right here, he says. And then he says, this woman you put here with me, she was the one who tricked me. And he throws his wife under the bus. I want you to notice this. This is super important, particularly for our times. The first act of injustice in the Bible is a man trying to cover for himself at the expense of a woman. Come on, church. That's not a joke. That's serious. Isn't it interesting that the first injustice we see in the Bible is a man trying to gain power over the oppression of a woman? Two things emerge from this. First of all, there is the sense that we want to now gain advantage for ourselves through our sin. And the second thing is that there's this idea of self-preservation that we see in Adam. Is this helpful? These two things, gaining advantage for ourselves and self-preservation, is why we redefine what's right and wrong so that we always come out on the right side of it. If you're married in here, you can say an amen. You know what I'm talking about. We redefine what's right and wrong so that we can gain an advantage and be on the right side so we self-preserve ourselves. Adam and Eve do it before God because they're afraid of Him. We do it in racist ways because we're afraid of other cultures. We do it in sexist ways because we're afraid of other genders. We do it in disability ways because we're afraid of things and people that are different to us. It's the same cycle time and time again, and it begins right here at the beginning of our story. And now here's the powerful thing. What you find in all of these relational contexts right here is that all of them break down immediately once we begin to redefine right and wrong for self-preservation and to gain advantage. Us and God. What do Adam and Eve do? They hide from God in the garden because they're now afraid of Him. Where before they had a flourishing relational connection to Him, now they want to hide from Him. What about us and ourselves? Where we were naked and unashamed at the end of Genesis 2, we now want to cover ourselves because we are ashamed. Us and others, Adam and Eve, throwing each other under the bus. Us and creation, God bringing a curse and saying to Adam, now your ruling over creation will bring toil for you. So all of the four relational contexts that were created for us to flourish and find justice in life have now been ruined because of our choice to take on good and evil for ourselves, completely redefine it, gain advantage, and self-preserve ourselves. That's the start of the gospel. Are you with me? Now, the good news is we have an awesome God, amen? And what we see happen almost straight away is that God begins to respond. See, the whole biblical story is not that God sees what happens in the breakdown of His creation and then runs away. We see a God who responds. And really, the story of the Old Testament through to the New is a story of a God who pursues broken people. He does so, first of all, by calling an individual. His name is Abraham. And God calls Abraham because of the familial breakdown, and basically the breakdown of family. And we see it with Cain and Abel in Genesis 4. And then it spirals out of control all the way through to Genesis 11. But in Genesis 12, God shows up. He responds and he takes one man and his biological family. And he says, I want you to go from here. And you're going to go over here. And guess what? We're going to try to start again. 
We're going to try now to take one family and build a new nation out of that family that can model the shalom, the wholeness, the justice, the flourishing that I always intended for creation, which has gone terribly wrong. We're going to start now with Abraham, and we're going to create a nation that comes to be known as Israel, and that is going to be a model for shalom. Making sense? Now, in this part of the narrative, three words in the Old Testament, from this point onwards, all through Genesis, Exodus, um, onwards from there, you see three words repeat themselves most often. The first word is the word righteousness. Everybody say righteousness. I don't know how to spell it. I'm writing in tongues. Right. So righteousness is the Hebrew word sedekah. Everybody say sedekah. Now, when we think of righteousness, here's what we think. We think righteousness is all about some personal piety between us and God so that God would be pleased with us. That the righteous are in a cleansed relationship with God. That's so often how we think about it. We think about it from a Western concept of individualism. To be righteous is to be pure of heart before the Lord. And if I'm pure in heart before God, then everything will be okay with me and I can be seen as one of the righteous. Does that make sense? That's not how the Hebrews understood it. That's total Western individualistic thought. In the Hebrew thought, it was much more about community than it was about the individual. The righteous were not individuals pious before God. The righteous were the ones who worked on behalf of shalom for their community. They were the ones who actually worked to build ethical values that would benefit the other as much as it would benefit themselves. Where the breakdown in sin made us gain advantage and self-preserve, the righteous in the Old Testament are ones that use moral, ethical values for the community to flourish once again. So it was actually about community, and it was about others. Is that making sense? Now, the second word that we see a lot in this part of the Scripture is the word that we translate justice. That word is the word mishpah. In, oops, I spelled it wrong. There's an H there. Uh, mishpah in the Hebrew. Everybody say mishpah. mishpah. Now, mishpah means this. Mishpah means the ability for you not just to seek the advantage of the other, but actually to seek it out proactively and to break down the systems that keep people enslaved. So justice was the outworking of righteousness. And in the Old Testament, righteousness and justice, you'll see this time and time again in Scripture, they occur side by side all the time. Making sense? You'll see this if you read the Psalms, you'll see if you read the prophets. Have you ever wondered why it says, His justice will go forth like the nations, His righteousness for all. And it's always that way because in the Hebrew, these two concepts are paired together. Righteousness are moral, are, are ethical values on behalf of community and justice ensuring that we as a community flourish together and we break down the systems that actually keep us enslaved. Is that making sense? Now, there's a third word that also gets repeated in this time, and it's the word we translate wicked. But it's actually the Hebrew word rashab. Everybody say rashab. You have to roll your tongue. Can you do that? Rashab. If you ever had the chance to write a Disney cartoon, make your evil character's name rashab. It sounds great. It's wicked. Okay. Now, how do we understand wicked? You know when you read the Old Testament, you read that word a lot, don't you? The wicked will this. The wicked are this. The wicked are that. Here's how you understand wicked. 
Wicked are those that do not seek the welfare of the community, nor do they break down the systems that keep the community oppressed. In other words, the wicked are those who would disadvantage the community for their own advantage, whereas the righteous and the just are those that be willing to disadvantage themselves so that the community would be in advantage. Do I need to say that again? The wicked are willing to disadvantage the community for their own advantage. That's basically the definition of injustice. But the righteous and just are the ones who would be willing to actually disadvantage themselves so that their community would take an advantage. And now, even at this point in our biblical story, can't we already begin to see the shades of Jesus? The one who would ultimately disadvantage himself on behalf of the world's community. These three concepts, righteousness, justice, and the wicked, begin to drive the rest of the Old Testament narrative. Um, I'm going to keep going. Let me give you one example from Exodus. Is this helpful for people? You guys still awake? Is this all right? Here's Exodus. This Exodus is a great model of the gospel in the Old Testament and the way that it works. What you see in the Exodus is you see Israel are the people who are oppressed. Who's oppressing them? Who's oppressing them? I thought you said Russia. I'm like, really? Russia. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> Rashad, the wicked. Yes. But specifically Egypt. Okay. Um, so Egypt are the ones that are causing all the problems for Israel. Now, here's what happens. Like God does with Abraham, so now God raises up another deliverer in the name of Moses. God, in other words, responds once again to the oppression of his people. He goes and says, this is not the narrative that I have created you for. There's a different narrative, so I will raise up somebody who can begin to show you a new way. And here's the brilliant thing that we see happen in Moses. First of all, he encounters the compassion of God at the burning bush. The burning bush is a beautiful moment for Moses because he's a broken man at that point. And God shows up and brings compassion on him and changes everything in his life. Take off your sandals, Moses, because I want your naked foot to be in my presence and my holiness. I want you to experience once again a shalom and an intimacy with me like it was for Adam and Eve in the garden. That's why he asks Moses to take off his sandals. Not because he didn't want the mucky, dirty stuff to get onto his holiness. It's because he wanted Moses to experience how shalom always was intended to be. Your nakedness, like an Adam and Eve, naked and unashamed. Your nakedness, my presence and spirit working together. Moses understands and experiences the holiness of God. And then God says to him, I have heard the cries of the enslaved Israelites, and I am turned in compassion towards them. And God begins to model something of his heart for justice. Then he tells our friend Moses, to go and be an advocate on behalf of the broken and enslaved people. Go to Pharaoh. Notice what God tells me to do. He actually sends him to the very one that was actually creating the system of injustice for God's people. When Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go, that's not just about some spiritual oppression. Those people were Pharaoh's labor force. This was financial ruin for Pharaoh to let these people go. And it was the labor force, the forced labor, the oppression that came through that, that was the issue. The system was keeping these people oppressed. So Pharaoh, so Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. He advocates on behalf of God's compassion. And then the third thing we see, of course, 
is that he then springs into action. Moses begins to do the things that God calls him to do, throwing down the staff, bringing the frogs, you know, all the plagues that take place, culminating in the, in the Passover that we know about, all so that God's people would get free. And what you see in the rest of the Old Testament narrative is that this idea of compassion, advocacy, and action is then uh, prophet, how do you spell? Prophet is then picked up by the prophets throughout the Old Testament. Have you ever wondered why the prophets are in the Bible? We often think of the prophets as like purveyors of doom. It's like they're the ones that show up and judge us for our bad sins. If we think of the prophets that way, we've actually misunderstood the gospel. Prophets are the ones that understand the compassion of God, advocate in front of the people for God's ways, and actually call the people to action. They're not prophets of doom. They're prophets of hope. They're the ones that are calling God's people back to the way that God had always created it to be. Why are you oppressing one another? The prophets would say to Israelites. Then the prophets would prophesy to the nations around Israel. Why are you treating people this way? Why are you the wicked when you should be the just and the righteous? And the prophets call God's people out so that they would live the narrative that God had always intended them to live. Now, at this point, we think everything maybe is beginning to go well again, but there's still a problem. You want to know what the problem is? Here's something that we see even happening today in modern society time and time again. The oppressed, when they gain their freedom, so often then become the oppressors. Are you with me? And what you see in the Scriptures is that the oppressed of Israel, when they gain their freedom basically become the oppressors of both themselves and other nations around them. It was easier to get Israel out of Egypt than Egypt out of Israel. That's why they had to wander for 40 years in the desert, and then they still didn't get it right as they entered into the promised land. But what you see in the Old Testament, particularly up to the end of the Old Testament, is Israel realizing that even though they are technically now free, they're still enslaved in their spirit. And they've still got this idea that they're trying to gain advantage and self-preservation by ruling over themselves rather than experiencing the good that God has for them, rule over creation in these four relational ways. And they realize they cannot fix it. That's the great end of the Old Testament. They tried so hard for themselves to fix this, and they found themselves slowly, every single time, falling back into oppression once and once again. And what you get, basically, in this problem of the oppressor becoming the oppressed is that they end up asking themselves, how can we ever break the system that we seem to be enslaved in? We can't seem to fix this issue. And by the time you get to the Old Testament, here's the question that the Bible is asking itself. Israel is standing up and saying, we cannot fix this injustice that's deep within us. The oppressed have become the oppressors. And they cry out and they say, God, you're going to have to come and do this. We cannot fix this ourselves. Dietrich Bonhoeffer would write it something like this. It is not good enough for us just to bandage up the wounds of those that have suffered under the wheels of injustice. We have to drive a spoke into the wheel itself. At the end of the New Testament, uh, end of the Old Testament, that's what Israel's struggling with. Like we're just band-aiding all of our brokenness all the time. 
But, but every time we put a band-aid on our brokenness, we seem to fall into sin again. We seem to fall into oppression again. We seem to cause injustice again. How can we fix the system, God? And of course, our answer is none other than Jesus. Can I have a woo All right, now, are you with me still? This is where everything begins to tie together. The whole point of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is to show us that God actually responds once again. It's always been about God pursuing His broken people and responding to their oppression. And in Jesus, God responds in the perfect way. Why? It's called this thing that we've come to know as the incarnation. Jesus is, as we're taught, fully God and fully what? Fully, fully ham, did I hear? Fully man. <laughs> I thought you said ham. I'm like, that's an interesting one. All right. Um, fully God and fully human, right? Why is Jesus needing to be fully God and fully human? Well, here's a simple answer. He needs to be fully God because only God can drive a spoke in the system to break it once and for all. He has to be fully human, though, because the problem is essentially a human issue. Jesus is the perfect representation of what can actually break the system of injustice that has happened. And look at how Jesus does this. Look at his life. First of all, we see him moving always with compassion. The Greek word is splagalitsumai. Splagalitsumai basically means your stomach is turned within you. And every time that before Jesus does something quite phenomenal in a miracle or a teaching or healing, he is moved in his gut to compassion. Jesus shows us the image of God fully, and he shows us that compassion. Jesus then is a powerful advocate for all of the oppressed that we see around him in the first century, always speaking up for the sinners, those that were judged that way, always speaking up for the lost and the broken and the hurting and the needy, going into the homes of people that the righteous would never go into, seeking out those people specifically because his heart was turned towards them, and then being a voice for them. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, because you will see God. Blessed are those who are meek, because you will blah, 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 and on and on and on. He advocates on behalf of them in ways that people had never done before, giving them hope. And then, of course, Jesus then is the one who provides action. The ultimate action, or examples of that action, are the miracles, the walking on water, the turning bread and fish to feed 5,000, uh, healing the blind, the doing all of these things that don't just show the power of God. When you see the miracles in the New Testament, don't just think, oh, our God is powerful. Think, God is beginning to restore shalom. God is beginning to show us again what a just world looks like. And the ultimate way in which Jesus then acts on behalf of freeing those that are oppressed by the system of sin is, of course, the thing that we come to understand as the cross. And on the cross, Jesus gives up his life, pays the price for our sin, and through the shedding of his blood and his resurrection, we come into new life. Amen? That's the gospel, isn't it? No. That's the gospel I shared with you right at the start of the night. If all that Jesus achieves on the cross is enough to enable you to be forgiven and go to heaven, guess what that does? That restores 
only one of the broken contexts that we see in the Scriptures. If our gospel is only that we, when we come to Jesus, get a ticket to heaven, we've got one quarter of the gospel. And it is good news, but it's not the whole good news. Because if, if we teach our people and if we proclaim that gospel and that gospel only, we're only proclaiming a limited release of what happens on the cross. We've only restored one of the broken contexts. Surely if the gospel is truly the power of God alive in us, then it has to restore all of these broken aspects. It also has to have the power to restore how we see ourselves. Surely it's got to have the power to be able to restore our brokenness with one another. Surely the gospel has the power to restore our brokenness around us in the land and the world and our creation. And only if the gospel can do that can we call it the whole gospel. You want to know what a theology of justice is? It's that when Christ died on the cross, he died so all of these broken contexts are renewed. And why is that important? Why is it important to know that it's not just about me getting to heaven, but it's actually about the restoration of everything that's broken? Why is that important? Because when you understand the gospel that way, here's what you say. I want to live on behalf of that narrative now. Why do I care for refugees and asylum seekers? Because the gospel tells me to. Why, why do we care about the ecological disasters that we see around the world? Because the gospel tells us to. Because if God is restoring all of that brokenness and bringing it back to shalom, anytime I take a little step towards somebody who's hungry and I give them food, I'm taking in the gospel of justice. Every single time that I step out and help somebody who's enslaved or caught up in trafficking or broken and vulnerable in some context at all, I'm helping to restore them to the shalom that God had, has required for them. I actually live out the gospel. Here's what I would say. You cannot call yourself a Christian unless you live upon behalf of the power of the cross to restore all of those broken contexts. Is anybody with me? That's the gospel. Not starting in Genesis 3 and saying, hey, you know, we get a ticket out of here because we're now forgiven. Well, that's important. That's part of the gospel. That's a quarter of it. Well done. The full gospel is that in our personal redemption and salvation, there is also redemption of relationships, redemption of brokenness, redemption of creation. And you know what? The gospel tells us all of this. Um, take a look later at 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. What it says is that we have now been reconciled back to God. This is Paul basically telling us the gospel. We've now been reconciled back to God. Then he also says in Galatians 4, 7, he says, When we are now redeemed in Christ Jesus, we are no longer slaves anymore, but sons and daughters of God, restoring the second of the broken context, us and how we think about ourselves. He then says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 15, that we have the peace of Christ ruling in our hearts so that now together we are members of one body actually restoring the brokenness of us with others around us. And then Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, um, starting 
in verse 17, he has a beautiful passage that says, All of creation has been groaning and wondering about its redemption, but in Christ Jesus, it is now redeemed, and it will come as Jesus returns. It will find the freedom from all of that groaning, restoring our brokenness with creation. Paul himself understood and believed in the whole gospel. Why are we passionate about helping the poor and the broken and the vulnerable? Because we want to be people of the whole gospel. People that actually get to live out and show the world exactly what that looks like. Which is why Micah says, you don't want to know what this really looks like? Love justice. Love mercy. Walk humbly with your God. Begin to walk out that kind of lifestyle before others. And guess what you'll find yourself doing? You're actually finding yourself being truly human again. Walking in the image of God. That, my friends is the gospel. That's why Jesus died on the cross. That's why we gather in our churches every Sunday. That's why when we feel and experience this together, something rises in our spirit and we say, I want to live on that story. And that gets me out of the pews and it gets me into my workplace. It gets me into my family. It gets me into the school system. It gets me into the prisons. It gets me into the homeless around here. It gets me into all the places because I actually believe the cross is far bigger than just what is wrong with me. Can I pray for us? Let's pray. And maybe I could invite you tonight if this is something you want to respond to. Um, I want to invite you maybe just to stand with me, actually. I, I think it would be great if we just stand before the Lord tonight. So why don't we just stand if you're comfortable to do so. And I wonder if you just open your hands with me. Father, we've gathered tonight hungry to hear you, to learn from you, to see you. Lord, we've gathered tonight to experience the gospel again afresh. And I wonder whether tonight you would just take a moment as you stand before the Lord. I want to lead us in a, a prayer response tonight. And I want to start with us just confessing our need for the cross again. The beautiful thing about the cross of Jesus is it's something that's always there for us. The power of his forgiveness and the power of his mercy and tonight your starting point might be, Lord, thank you for helping me to see the gospel and the cross again. Forgive me for where I've limited the view of the gospel to just my personal salvation, as important as that is. Maybe just take a moment just to sit with him and reflect on that. Tonight you might also, as you're standing before the Lord, just want to maybe reflect on whether for you the reality has been that you've been living one quarter of the gospel. There's no condemnation in that. The Bible says there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus, but maybe tonight there's an awakening for you in your heart, a, a realization in your spirit that there's more to the gospel than you ever realized. And maybe you do realize that you've been embracing maybe one quarter or maybe one half, but there's other elements of it that you've passed over. And maybe tonight that's something you can bring before the Lord, again, not in any sense of condemnation, but just in a sense of, Father, I see it now again afresh. Help me to see it even more. Stir my heart, Lord, for the, the things that I've missed, 
Or maybe tonight, as I've unpacked that, it's resonated with your heart because you've always felt that that was the gospel, but you've not been able to articulate it or see it like that. And maybe tonight your heart is beating faster because you're celebrating in your spirit. Wow, finally, I understand all these longings I've had in my heart for the broken, all of these things that have been going on in my life for the needy around me. I've never quite fully known what to do with it. But tonight, Lord, I see that when Paul writes in the scriptures that the same power that raised Christ from the cross is in me. And now I can, I can really theologically, biblically understand that. And tonight that might be a celebration for you. However you might want to respond, the Holy Spirit's here in power tonight. Because anytime you open up the gospel, the Spirit of God just moves and works. And so just let's not rush from this moment of encounter with Him. And take some time. In a moment, I'm going to invite Steve and he's going to come and he's going to lead us in, I think, what is the perfect response to an understanding of the gospel, and that's communion, the Lord's Supper. It's a beautiful moment in uh, Luke chapter 24 where the two disciples that were walking on the Emmaus Road invite Jesus in for a meal. And Jesus takes the bread, he breaks it, and he gives thanks and he passes it to them. And the Bible says that in that moment, their eyes were opened and they were able to see who Jesus truly was. The interesting thing is in Genesis 3, there's exactly the same passage. It says that when Adam and Eve took the fruit shared it amongst themselves and ate it, their eyes were opened and they realized they were naked and they were ashamed. What happens in Luke 24 is a reversal of what happens in Genesis 3, where in Genesis 3, his eyes opened to the reality of nakedness and shame. In, Gen in Luke 24, eyes are opened to the reality of resurrection and life. And so when we come around the communion table, we come around it invited by the Lord to bring our sin before Him, to confess what might need to be confessed. And then we're invited to celebrate and to receive eyes that are opened to the gospel that Jesus in his resurrection has restored us with him, us with ourselves, us with others, us with creation. And it's in that thought of celebration that we come around the Lord's Supper tonight. Thanks, Steve. We're going to ask our helpers if they'll just head out the bread and the cup now. Um, and I'm going to ask you just to hold that together. So I want us just to meditate and allow the Spirit of God to speak with us. As you know, the piece of bread is a reminder.